0: Awesome, man, great job guys, incredible, Uh, man, awesome. My name is Aaron, Um, so good to be here tonight. If you've got a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn. We're going to be in a couple places tonight, but primarily going to be in Philippians chapter two. So I'll just let you go ahead and turn there and uh, just stick your finger in there or a bookmark in there and we'll get to Philippians chapter two in in just a minute. Again, my name is Aaron. I live in Atlanta, Georgia with my wife. Uh, Been married to Carmen for 16 years. We've got four kids. Tell you a little bit more about our family in just a second. Um, But I work for an organization that, that, among other things, we plant churches all across North America. Uh, we partner with churches like the Austin Stone to, to plant churches uh, in every state, in every province of Canada uh, for, the, for the glory of God. And that's what I get to do in my um, day job. But prior to moving to Atlanta three and a half years ago, uh, we lived in New York City uh, for nine and a half years. And uh, we got to be a part of some amazing things that God was doing uh, in that incredible city um, in the days and weeks and years after um, 9-11. This picture back here that they're going to pop up in just a second is a picture of my family. And, uh, and it's, it, yeah there they are. It's my wife, Carmen, there in the middle. And then our two kids, that's Ezra over here. And um, Harper is the, the little one. Uh, and then this is Joshua over here. Uh, and that's Ella right there with her uh, hand around Harper's throat. Uh, so that tells you a little bit about how it goes in, in our house. But we, uh, over the last 10 years, God's really taken us on a journey. Uh, It was 10 years ago um, this summer um, that we had been told, my wife and I, uh, that we would never have kids. And we had suffered through the uh, pain and heartache of a couple of miscarriages and finally the doctors kind of got to the end of all their possible solutions and they just told us that uh, it didn't look like we would ever... um, bear children naturally. And so what that did is that God took us on a little bit of a journey in our lives and we kind of had our dreams and our ideas of what things were going to look like. And so we went on a little bit of a journey and uh, began to pursue overseas adoption. And uh, we were living in New York City at the time and we began to pursue um, overseas adoption. We went through all the classes and the training and uh, filled out all the paperwork. And about the time we got the paperwork all finalized, We found out that we were pregnant, as oftentimes happens. And uh, we thought, this is amazing. I didn't think this could happen. But it really wasn't crazy because we had been pregnant before. But what was crazy is that we made it to the the 10-week mark. And Carmen was still carrying. And then we made it to the 20-week mark and everything was still a go. And it was at the 20-week mark that we went in to the doctors and, uh, and we did the ultrasound and did the tests. And it was during that, moment that we were sitting in the little room where they do the ultrasound and and the the nurses came in and they were looking at the screen. The doctor came in looking at the screen on the ultrasound. They uh, they looked and then they went out of the room and then they brought more people in and they looked and they went out of the room. They brought more people in. They looked and they went out of the room and finally we got the picture that this isn't good. And so they're looking at the machine and finally the doctor comes back in uh, after a little while and they say, listen, your, your son who's 20 weeks in your womb um, looks like he is going to have major problems And I won't go into all the story, but uh, long story short, uh, we were, again, in New York City at the time, and there was a lot of pressure among the medical community there for us to to terminate the pregnancy, and they kind of walked us through what that would look like. And finally, I kind of just had to put a stop to that, and I said, listen, I don't care if that kid comes out with his forearm sticking out of his forehead, uh, we're having our son. And they said, well, that's your decision. And so we waited, and no more tests for the next, uh, the next 20 weeks. And on July the 8th of 2006, our, our son Ezra was born, and he was born perfectly healthy to the glory of God. And so he, he just turned eight a couple of weeks ago. But during that whole process, it never really released us from adoption, and we knew that we wanted to continue to pursue adoption. And so uh, we, but at that time we were planting a church in, in New York City and really trying to figure out how in the world are we going to afford overseas adoption? And all of our resources at that moment had gone into the planting of that church and really uh, kind of questioning how are we going to find the resources? And when a friend of ours, she was a social worker in the city, she came to us and said, listen, do you realize that there's 16,000 foster children in New York City? Have you ever thought about fostering to adopt? And we said, well, we've never really considered it seriously. We never thought it was an option. And every time we pursued uh, domestic adoption, it seemed like it was impossible. And so we just kind of gave up hope. She said, well, listen, let me tell you, there's kind of the front door to the process, and then there's the back door, and I'm going to walk you through the back door. And so she did, and she started to coach us through the process, and she said, you need to sign up to be fostered to adopt. And so that's what we did, and we went through the training again. um, This was in the summer of 2009. We finished the training, uh, and they brought Joshua to come. Come and live with us uh, Christmas Eve of 2009. Joshua was 20 days old when they dropped him off. He had been born six weeks premature. Uh, he weighed four and a half pounds when they brought him into our living room. And the social workers just brought him into the living room. They sat him in the middle of the floor. They dropped a box of uh, supplies off in our kitchen uh, and then they left. No instructions, no further training, uh, no videos, uh, nothing uh, that gave us any sort of history on this child or told us what we were about to expect. Uh, They just dropped him off. And as as if it were right now today, I still remember as the social workers were leaving, they were walking out the door. We kind of ushered them out the door. And one of them, as the door was about to close, she stuck her foot and then her face back into the door and she says, hey. I just had an idea. Joshua has a sister who's in foster care. Um, Would you all take her too? And it's in those moments in life that you just pray um, that you have the right words, because it's in those moments that everything probably is going to change. And so my wife and I, we just glanced at each other and uh, just kind of had a look and we just nodded back to the social worker and we said, absolutely, we'll take her. And so a few months later, they brought Ella to live with us. And uh, and what's amazing about the whole story is that um, we, we journeyed with Joshua and Ella uh, as our foster children, even made the move to Atlanta, where we now live, from New York. Uh, they were still our foster children. And actually, we just finalized, after four and a half years, just finalized their adoption last week um, in New York City. <clears throat> so in our mind, we went from not thinking we'd have any kids, to one day waking up having three. And if you'd asked us if we were to write the story ourselves and if we were the ones orchestrating the story, would we have written the story that way? The answer would have been no. Because when we got out of college and when we got married and got our first jobs I and mean, we had our plan on how everything was going to go. Carmen and I both went to school near Nashville. We got degrees in the music business. Carmen worked on Music Row in Nashville, uh, and we were living kind of the, the dream and We had our idea that one day after a few years of marriage we 'll end up having kids and we, we had it all planned out how it was going to go and Then one day we ended up with three kids in a way that we didn 't expect. Some of may be wondering we ended up with a fourth um, in there uh, and uh, I, What basically happened, my wife denies this story, but what basically happened is we rented an RV for spring break uh, in 2012, and then nine months later, uh, we ended up with Harper, another miracle. She says that's not exactly how it happened, but I beg to differ. Here's the point. We had our plans of how it's all going to work out. But the reality is that God had a purpose and plan that was different, but yet ultimately was the same. And ultimately God had to take us on a journey uh, to understand him more. He had to take us on a journey so that our hearts would be open to things that we had not ever considered before. You see, we would have never considered domestic adoption. We never would have considered New York City. We never would have considered Joshua and Ella if we hadn't been taken on a journey that can only be explained on this side of it as the sovereignty of God and God's weaving and working in our lives. And our willingness, sometimes at a great struggle, our willingness to follow. You see, here's the reality for all of us tonight. God has a purpose and plan for our lives. He has a mission for our lives. He's created each and every one of you to live on mission with him. And here's his promises about this mission. First of all, Philippians 1.6 tells us that he will be faithful to complete the mission, the work, the purpose that he has called us to. But we're also promised that in, in Ephesians three twenty that God is going to do immeasurably more in our lives than we can currently think or imagine. And so when we join with God on mission with Him, He's going to do more than we're currently thinking right now. And He is going to be faithful to complete the task. However, the reality is is that there's no roadmap. There's no roadmap. We, we don't get a, a map that says, here's what the next 10 years, here's what the next 20 years, here's what the next 30 years of our lives are going to look like. There's no roadmap when we join with Jesus on his mission. The other thing is, is that we only fully understand God's purposes and plans. We only fully understand the immeasurably more when we're looking in the rearview mirror. You see, a lot of people get paralyzed waiting for God to fully reveal himself and reveal all of his plans to them, and they they get paralyzed waiting when he is asking us to daily follow him faithfully. And it's only after a period of time that we're able to look back and see the faithfulness of God in our lives. The children of Israel, they're, they're the classic story. They've been begging for God to deliver them from the Egyptian rule. And then they, they are delivered. Their prayer comes true. And then they go on a journey with God. They they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Not quite what they had in mind. And while they're out there on that journey, they begin to complain. But it's only after a period of time and they look back on everything that they had been through that they realize the Lord truly has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. You see, there's no road map and we're only going to fully understand God's purposes when we look in the rearview mirror. And then the last thing about the mission that God has called each and every one of us to, the thing that he has wired each and every one of us for, here, here's the last thing that we need to know tonight, is that that mission is ultimately not about us. The, the, the mission is not about us. It's not about our story. You see, the world that we live in is looking for a story. They're looking for something to believe in, something to put their hope in. And our jobs as as carriers of the fame of Jesus is to live our lives in such a way, both through, through action and through our words, so that other people will begin to understand a better story see, the world is pretty desperate. The world is, is pretty broken. We see brokenness all around us. And though people may put up a good front saying, listen, I don't need that. I'm a self-made person. I've got it all figured out. I, I know the way I'm supposed to go. At the end of the day, when trouble hits, everybody is looking for hope. And, and the real question for us as the church is when the world is looking for hope, are we going to be the ones there to offer a different story? You see, the truth is, is that God has wired and and created each and every one of us in this room tonight to be on mission with him so that we can tell a better story, so that we can ultimately tell his story. And in the book of John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus has just risen from the dead. It's just after the resurrection and Jesus gathers with his disciples in the upper room and he says to them, peace be with you. Very monumental time in their lives. They're scared to death. They think that Jesus has died and it's over and done with. Now they have experienced the resurrection. Now they're experiencing Jesus in the flesh one more time. And he says, peace be with you. And then he says these words to his disciples. He says, as the father has sent me, so now I am sending you see, as a result of the resurrection, Jesus is now telling his disciples, now that I have risen, I'm going away to be with the Father in heaven, now it's your job to live on mission, just as God has sent me, now I am sending you. And so this mission that God calls us to live on with him. This mission that he calls us to live on is not a mission without a model. It's not not a mission without a guide. You see, we have been left with the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been left with Jesus, the great comforter, as our guide in this mission. And Jesus is telling us, listen, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And we get a picture in Philippians chapter 2. And again, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to just walk through Philippians 2. Chapter two tonight, pointing out a few things about the the goal of Jesus' mission for us. Philippians chapter two, verse four through eleven. Let me read it for us, and then I just want to reference three things fairly quickly. Here's what it says. He says, Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death... On a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. A couple things I want to point out tonight uh, before we jump into the three points I want to make a couple things. The goal of Jesus's mission is others and ultimately his glory. The goal of Jesus's mission is others and ultimately his glory. If you're wondering what God's will is for your life, I think we see it pretty clearly right here in Philippians 2, that the goal is others, consider others more highly than yourselves. But ultimately we see that at the end of the day, it's all about his glory. And there's three things we see about Jesus as we participate with him in his mission, to make him known so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's three things that we see in Jesus as our model in the mission. The first thing that we see is that Jesus was sent humbly. Jesus was sent humbly and he is sending us humbly. You see it says in verse 8 it says being found in human form Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. You see Jesus was willfully obedient to the assignment that he had been given. Jesus is the only human in history who has had a choice in his own death. He had every right to claim his deity in this moment. Yet he made the decision to set his deity aside so that he could accomplish the ultimate will of the Father. Now this is where you and I start to, we, we, we start to struggle with the mission of Jesus because we get this conceptually. We get this, that, this idea that we're supposed to, to lay our lives down. We're supposed to set our si- ourselves aside. We get that conceptually, but when the rubber hits the road at the end of the day, and we start to have to give up some of our own preferences, we have to start to give up some of our own comforts, some of our own ways of thinking, some of our own plans, that's where we start to diverge from remaining on mission with Jesus. Because we had our ideas about how things were going to be. We had already written the story in our mind. And when the story doesn't go the way that we think it ought to go, then we get off the path. But with Jesus... He knew where the story was ultimately going to land him. Jesus knew that the story was ultimately going to land and end in his death. And immediately when he hits the earth, he is faced with crisis. He's faced with trouble. He's faced with problems. He's faced with persecution. Yet he realized for the joy set before him, he ultimately would need to endure the cross. But here's the reality. Jesus's preferences were much different. We see in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus prays, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. So Jesus' preference was, let this cup pass from me. But his posture was, not my will, but your will. Jesus' preference would have been to claim his right as God in this moment, therefore bypassing the the human agony of going to the cross. But his posture was, into thy hands I commit my spirit. See, Jesus' preference would have been to have have taken the wide road, the easy road. But his posture is that he knew that the narrow road is the road that ultimately leads to salvation. You see, when we seek to join Jesus on his mission, we really have a choice. Is it about our preference? Is it about what we want? Is it about our needs, our comfort, our desires? Or is our posture not my will, but your will? Every time you're faced with a challenge in life, you probably ought to ask yourself, is is this about my preference? Is this about my comfort, my own satisfaction? Or is this about the will of Jesus in my life? You see, the only way that we can approach life in that way is if we're humble. If we realize that God is the one who's orchestrating all the activities of our lives. And ultimately, if we have a belief And a trust that he is going to do and fulfill everything that he said he's going to do and fulfill. The second thing we see about Jesus is that Jesus was sent empty. Jesus was sent empty. Verse 6 says that he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. The idea here is that Jesus made himself Nothing uh, the, the, the Greek language here says that Jesus literally emptied himself of everything, and he held his plans loosely. You, you see, we live in a very self oriented world. everything tends to be about ourselves. We even have a social media kind of descriptor uh, that that just indicates how uh, how much it is about our so, Carmen and I were in Washington, D.C. just a few weeks ago, and uh, you know, listen, I get the selfies. Uh, we took a selfie yesterday in the airport uh, while we were flying here, but we were in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago, and there was this lady just laying on the ground out in front of one of the big museums there in D.C., taking a picture of herself. I'm like, this is when the selfie has gone to a whole nother level. Like, this is absolutely un Nobody cares that you're laying in front of the Indian Museum in Washington, D.C. But somehow our social media platforms and other things have have elevated if we're not careful. And hear me clearly. I'm all for engaging everything that we can engage in life and enjoying life. But if we're not careful we ultimately get the story confused and start to think that the story is about us. And so this whole idea of selfishness creeps into our mission if we're not careful. But Jesus emptied himself of every bit of self that he had so that he ultimately could be useful. You see, here's the reality for us. We can't be full of of ourselves and empty of ourselves um, at the same time. It's absolutely impossible. We can't be full of ourselves and empty of ourselves all at the same time. And so if all of life is reliant on us and what we can do for God, we ultimately miss the picture The reality is, is God wants to have a relationship with us and that requires that we are empty of ourselves, fully trusting in what he wants to do in and through us. And the last thing about Jesus that we see here in, in verse six is that Jesus was sent securely. So Jesus was sent humbly. He was sent empty. And the last thing that we see from Jesus is that he was sent securely. Jesus knew who he was. In verse 6, it says, though he was in the form of God. Jesus knew who he was. He was God. But he also knew who he was not. Jesus knew who he was. But probably most importantly, Jesus knew who he was not. Well, who was Jesus not? Jesus wasn't called to appease people. He was called to bring truth. You see, in Jesus's ministry, he starts with massive crowds when he begins his ministry. But by the end, there was just a handful hanging around. And Jesus understood that his mission wasn't to appease people. He actually knew that people were gonna take him out. Jesus told the truth. There's a story of the woman at the well where Jesus encountered this woman and gets into a nice conversation with her and ultimately he doesn't let the conversation go without confronting her on her sin and her need to repent. And ultimately Jesus calls her out on her multiple husbands that she has had but ultimately restores relationship with her. You see, Jesus's ministry was one where he told the truth, but he spoke the truth in love. But see, the only way we can be secure in life and the only way we can securely engage in the mission of God is if we're secure. And the only way we can do that is if we know who we are, but we also have to know who we are not. You see, insecurity, in my opinion, may be one of the biggest inhibitors to a life lived on purpose or a life lived on mission with Jesus. What do I mean by that? Because if we live our lives insecurely, not knowing who we are, not knowing what we were created to do, then, then then the opposite is what we're living for. The opposite is we are looking for others to tell us what we're supposed to be living for. We're looking for others to tell us who we're supposed to be. We're constantly looking over our shoulder, measuring ourselves against everyone else that we come in contact with. And so we might see somebody kind of running the race over here and they're running a little bit faster than us. And so we, we look over there and we think we got to run a little bit faster. Or we might look over here and see somebody run a little bit slower. And we look over here and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as they are. And so we kind of compare ourselves and ultimately we end up living our lives insecurely, afraid, always looking over our shoulder, wondering what others are going to think. Are we measuring up? Are we doing all of the right things? You see, in John chapter 13, Jesus is is, is washing the, the feet of his disciples. And one of the things it says about Jesus um, in, in John chapter 13 is that Jesus knew that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. You see, Jesus knew where he had come from. His security was based in that, in that foundation. He knew where he had come from, but he also knew where he was going. So his security was also based in the fact that he had come from God, but he was going Back to God, and so that everything that happened in the middle of coming from God and going back to God really was inc- inconsequential because Jesus was living with a much bigger view of life, knowing that one day he 's going back to God the Father, and so his thirty three years on earth, yes, they were tough, yes they were they were full of heartache, trial, persecution, pain, and death, but he ultimately knew that that wasn 't the final Story that death wasn't gonna be the last chapter. So Jesus knew that he had come from God and that he was returning back to God. So what does it look like for us? How do we live our lives securely? Well, we have to know where we have come from and we have to know where we are going. Let's think about that just for a second. As believers, where have we come from? From If you're a believer in Jesus today, where have you come from? Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, it says in Ephesians chapter 2 that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. So that was your history. You were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sin before you knew Jesus. It doesn't get any worse than dead. Dead in your trespasses and sin. But then it goes on to say, but God, being rich in mercy... He loved us despite our sin. And what did he do? He ultimately saved us by his grace. And so your story tonight, where you have come from tonight, is that you have, if you placed your faith in Jesus, is that you have come from death into life. God has done for you what you couldn't do on your own, and that is save you. There's nothing that you could do to earn God's favor. It's only by his grace alone. What I found as I traveled all over the the country speaking to different groups is I found that it's, it's it's the great grace of God that people have the hardest time wrapping their Hands around. You see, in our culture, we we are so prone to wanting to do things. We're wanting to earn favor. We're wanting to work our way up the ladder. But when it comes to the grace of God, when it came to our death in sin, there's ultimately nothing that we could do to remove ourselves from death and to earn the grace of God. Nothing that we could do, but it was a free gift. From him. So, where have we come from? We have come from death into life. And then as believers, where are we going? Well, Revelation chapter 21 reminds us and, and tells us that one day God is going to make all things right. And what it also tells us is that those who are in Christ Jesus will dwell with God. He will be their God. And he will wipe away all every tear that they have. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And so where are we going? Well, we're going to an eternity with God the Father. So, where have we come from? We've come from death to life. Where are we going? We're ultimately going to spend eternity with God in heaven. And I would beg you tonight, I, I would dare say tonight that if we lived our lives in view of the eternity we're going to spend with God, then all of a sudden the things that He calls us to here and now are going to pale in comparison. And the challenges that we face here and now are going to pale in comparison to the eternity that we get to spend with Him. And they're going to pale in comparison from where we have come from. You see, God has called us to live our lives on mission with Him And we are the carriers of his good news. The Bible says that beautiful are the feet of those who carry the good news. So here's the the reality and where the rubber hits the road tonight. Every one of you are surrounded by people in your sphere of influence who don't know Jesus. Every one of you are surrounded by people who need to know of the greatness of God. You, every one of you are surrounded by people in your lives who are writing their own story. And, and the challenge as they're writing their own story when life gets tough and they ultimately find no hope, they're looking for a story. And God has orchestrated it that we would be the ones to carry his good news. And for some of us, that's, going to look like we need, it's going to mean that we need to leverage our lives to serve others. For, for some, it's going to mean that we look at our, our neighborhoods differently, the places where we live, the apartment complexes where we live, we're going to look at those places differently. We're going to now start to see that, that those places are not just simply places where we live and where we hang out, but they're places where real people live, people, many of whom maybe need to know about Jesus, many of whom have real needs, real hurts, real desires in their lives, and maybe we could come alongside of them. Many of you are probably students in here, and maybe for the, for t- the first time, God may be revealing to you tonight that maybe your campus is the place where you're to live on mission, that that school is not just for you and your degree and what you're gonna get out of it. But ultimately, maybe God has you there because there are people around you who need to hear of his great love and grace. For for many of you, God may be putting some other place on your heart tonight. You may realize that there are places all over the world, many places all over the world where, where people haven't heard at all of the greatness of God. And it may be that God may need you to go to one of those places. You see, we've all been called to live our lives on mission. And the reality is all of our lives on mission, they really do matter. You see, we've kinda had a mindset in this country that the church collectively does mission, that pastors do mission, that missionaries do mission, But as I read the Bible and as I look at the commands of Jesus, what I realize and what I see is that God has called each and every one of us individually to live on mission with Him. And as we all individually live on mission with Him, collectively we'll be a force that helps expand the kingdom here in Austin, Texas, around the U.S. and around the world. There's a story of a girl named Jessica. Jessica was in our church in New York City. Jessica moved to New York um, as a college student. She was a biochemical engineering student at Columbia University. She was pretty smart. Jessica was a Chinese immigrant. Her family had just moved to the, the U.S., had big hopes and dreams for her coming to Columbia. I'll never forget... One Sunday, Jessica comes to me and says, Aaron, I really believe that, that God is, is calling me to, to live on mission with him. So here's what I'm going to do this summer. I'm going to take my summer plans and I'm going to I'm gonna go on a, a, on a summer project with Campus Crusade for Christ. And so that's what she did that summer. So she went on a summer project with Campus Crusade for Christ and came back. Her life was totally changed. So she came to me a few weeks later and she said, hey, I, I think God's really done a work in my life through this summer project. And so now I think I'm gonna intern this semester on our campus at Columbia uh, for Campus Crusade. And I'm gonna, uh, because I believe there are thousands of students there that, that need to hear of the greatness of God. I said, that's awesome. And so she finished up her degree. She spent her last semester or year um, as an intern with Campus Crusade. Toward the end of her senior year, Jessica came to me and said, hey, I think what God may be calling me to do is to put my plans aside, my biochemical engineering degree aside and just join full-time in the mission of Campus Crusade on this campus. And what's really amazing about Jessica's story is that Jessica's just an average girl, Actually, if you'd asked me when I first met her if she was ever gonna be one that would be boldly proclaiming her faith on Columbia's campus, I probably would have said no. She's about the shyest girl that I knew. But God began to work in her heart. And ultimately, she began to loosen the grips of her plans for her life. And she began to realize that her life on mission mattered. And, and that God wanted to use her in a different way. And, and, and she would be the first to tell you today that not everybody needs to give up their, their their degree. She'd actually encourage many people to pursue your degree and keep going down that path. But regardless of the way that God takes you, use whatever you have ultimately for his glory. Because the thing that Jessica realized is that her life on mission mattered. One, one last story and then I'm done Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Vietnam for the first time. And over the course of several years, we went back to Vietnam year after year. And uh, one particular year, we went to Vietnam and I was leading a pastor's training conference um, for a whole week um, out in the rural part just outside of Ho Chi Minh City. Now, Vietnam, as it relates to Christians, is still one of the places in the world where it's very tough to be a Christian. Actually, the the Human Rights Campaign still ranks Vietnam in one of their top places for religious persecution. And so, many of the believers in Vietnam have to be very careful about how they, they interact. Well, one Sunday afternoon after we had finished uh, the the pastor's training, uh, we had a break on Saturday. And then on Sunday afternoon, they took me out to preach um, in a church, a little house church. We went out into the village, kind of wove around through some alleyways. We got to this house and and then we walked into this house and kind of wove through the hallway and then up some narrow stairs. And uh, on the second floor of this house, there was a church, about 60 believers crammed into a room, probably as big as this stage and so they asked me to bring the word that day. And so I preached and it's kind of amazing. Uh, maybe they hadn't been to America much, uh, but they actually did the preaching first uh, and then they had the music second, uh, which was odd. So we did the preaching first. And so I preached for about 45 minutes. I closed my Bible and I began to walk off the stage this direction. As I walked off the stage, this little Vietnamese woman, uh, its kind of strange. Uh, she had a guitar around her neck. And she was walking toward me with the guitar and she puts the guitar out like this and she says, you sing now. (laughs) I was like, uh, what? She says, uh, you sing now. I said, no, no, no. I speak and I'm done. (laughs) And I tried to like, translate a little bit. I don't know why when we try to translate things with people, we can't communicate verbally. We use big hand signals, those kind of things. But I was like saying, you know, I'm done like an air traffic controller. And she was saying, no, you're not done. You sing now. Apparently uh, those were the three words that she had memorized. And so you sing now. And so I took the guitar uh, and put it around my neck, uh, having the foggiest idea of what I was going to do with that guitar. Luckily, I looked over here to the side, uh, and much like tonight, uh, there's a keyboard. Uh, but it was a little further over there. And there's a keyboard and there's a little man sitting behind the keyboard. And I thought, well, this is awesome. Uh, Maybe he knows how to play something on that keyboard. Maybe we could do Amazing Grace. uh, We just kind of stumble our way through that and it'll be awesome. And so um, I kind of looked at him like, hey, what are you bringing to the table? Because I'm not bringing much. You got anything for us? And then he started banging on the keys. And what I quickly found out is he wasn't there to play the keyboard on that keyboard. Uh, He was there to play the drums with the keyboard. Now, I don't know if you ever, I mean, anybody that plays the drums with the keyboard, everything sounds like we will rock you. It's like, (laughs) doom doon, 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 So he's sitting there ready to rock and roll on the keyboard playing the drums. And I realized, uh, this is not going to be good. So um, I closed my eyes, learned something about worship leaders right then. When worship leaders close their eyes, doesn't mean they're more spiritual than anybody else. Just means they don't know what they're gonna say or sing. They're trying to remember the words. Luckily for me, I had a high school English teacher that taught me a few Leonard Skinner songs in high school. So I knew the three major chords of rock and roll and figured that I could match those three chords up with some worship song. And so I closed my eyes and grabbed hold of the guitar, rusted strings and all. Ringo over here, by the way, really doesn't give me a chance to get going. He just goes for it and going on the drums. And so... All right, close my eyes and just go for it. and I just started singing. The splendor of a king, robed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice, let all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light and darkness tries to hide. So far, so good. Then I get to the chorus and I start singing. How great is our God, sing with me. And then go through the chorus. Well, by this time, I would get brave enough to actually open my eyes for the first time. (laughs) Made it through the chorus once. And on the front row, right over here, um, there were a couple of students, one in particular that my eye went to. And then one of them was just, he was just going for it. Arms up in the air, crying, singing the song at the top of his lungs. And I started thinking to myself, well, maybe I'm not so bad after all. Let's sing it one more time. And so we sang it one more time. But I quickly figured out that um, the reason he was singing How Great Is Our God had zero to do with me. So I went up to him afterwards and we got to, I got to know his story and we began to talk and and he recounted his story and see what had happened was several, several weeks prior to that day that I was there, a friend of his, that he was in school with began sharing the gospel with him. And ultimately that friend brought him to this church. And over the course of a few weeks, this young guy ultimately gave his life to Jesus. The thing is when he ultimately gave his life to Jesus, He was ultimately saying goodbye to everything that he had ever known in his life. You see, this young guy, his parents were both in the government in Vietnam and it really wasn't politically advantageous for them to have a son who was a follower of Jesus, a Christian. And so they immediately cut him off. And so when they cut him off, they moved him out of their house. They cut off all of his financial resources, which meant that he was having to leave school, uh, his whole social network made up of friends and family was immediately gone. And within the course of just a few weeks, this young guy found himself almost completely alone, having only the people in that church to rally around him. And when he was singing, How Great Is Our God?, he was singing it as someone who actually believed it because he had lost everything in his life. Everything that he had ever known, he ultimately was required to hold it absolutely loosely and ultimately let it go so that he could follow Jesus. And he just said, Aaron, I wouldn't change a thing. In his broken English, he said, I wouldn't change a thing. And he realized that God had wired him from the very beginning of time, had chosen him to live on mission with him. And this young guy knew better than most that his life on mission really did matter. And he determined for the rest of his life to use whatever gifts, energy, resources he had to make Jesus known to the people in the central highlands of Vietnam. So for us tonight who live in the US and we get to move pretty freely, not really any major political upheaval because we follow Jesus. We really have a choice tonight. Do we really believe that Jesus has done all that he has done and that Jesus is who he says he is? And do we ultimately trust him enough to take the grip that we have on life and just slowly begin to release it. Saying to Jesus, wherever you lead, I will go. Trusting that he is going to complete the very work that he begins in us. And also trusting that he will do in our lives abundantly, immeasurably more than we're currently thinking or imagining right now. Let's pray together. Every head bowed, every eye closed in the room. Jesus, we thank you tonight that you have done for us what we could not do on our own and you have saved us. But God, you haven't saved us to sit on the sidelines. God, you saved us to live our lives on mission with you. Because God, there are millions of people in the world who don't know You. And so, God, you have called us, you've commissioned us to live on mission so that others will know and have the opportunity to know Jesus. So, before we finish tonight, just two quick challenges heads bowed, eyes closed. As you're sitting there tonight, I want you to imagine. The people in your immediate sphere of influence. People you know that need Jesus. People in your life that are just trying to piece it together, figure it out on their their own, desperately looking for a savior. Can you see them right now? Can you picture their faces? So here's my tangible challenge to you tonight. Would you just commit over these next days to pray for them? And as appropriate, and as you have opportunity to, to share Jesus with them, maybe that's a friend, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a brother, sister, maybe it's a coworker, somebody that needs Jesus. Maybe for some of you tonight, you've been wrestling with a tough decision for a long time. You've been sensing that God is calling you to do something more, to do something hard, to do something that's gonna require you to give up a whole lot, but you've been resistant, not sure what it was gonna mean for you, socially or economically. You've been scared, fearful of what taking that leap might mean. So my challenge to you tonight is would you just start to let go Let go of that fear, let go of that insecurity and just allow Jesus to work in your story because he wants to tell a much bigger story than what you're able to tell on your own. Would you begin to trust Jesus? The last challenge tonight is for those of you, and I hope you're here tonight, for those of you who've walked in this room tonight and you don't know Jesus. And when I talked earlier about people building their own system of salvation, trying to work their way to God. You resonated with that because you've been on a one track to kind of figure things out in your life on your own. And maybe tonight for the first time, you're just saying in your heart, Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner. I can't figure it out on my own and I need you. So God, we thank you for how you have challenged us tonight through your word. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight that you would continue to confirm in their hearts, even now as we sing, what it is that you want them to do as a result of hearing your word. May they put the things in practice immediately that you have convicted them to do tonight. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.